We're not in a, a typical Easter passage, but I would argue that Philippians is a book that is talking about the outworking of the reality of the resurrection. We have in, uh, said throughout this study that one of the primary imperatives that the whole book is built on comes from Philippians chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that, that from that one imperative, living a man, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, everything else in the book flows out of and depends on that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message and the story of who he was and what he has done. And Philippians talks about the the progress we should be experiencing and the joy we should be experiencing while living in light of the reality of the resurrection. If Christ has been raised from the grave, that changes everything. And the passage we're looking at today is going to be talking about how we're to be living in light of the resurrection, dealing partially with the manner in which we're thinking and partially the manner in which we're acting. And as uh, Paul describes these things, I, I want to emphasize to you that it's very important how you think. Your thinking can transform a lot of different things. There's a story from the concentration camps uh, during Hitler's reign in Germany. And one of the things that occurred in these uh, concentration camps was a lot of uh, activity they would do. uh, The purpose of it was to wear them down psychologically. And there was uh, one, one group of people and they were uh, trying to keep their optimism up and, and all these things. And then one day they, Uh, had them move a pile of stones from one side of the camp to the other. And then the next day, they had them move them from that side back to where the stones originally were. An interesting thing happened after that. There was a huge increase in mortality in the concentration camp. Now, nothing had changed in terms of the extent or the hardship that they were experiencing. What changed was they began to realize they have no hope. They're just toying with us. And that change in mentality actually led to an increase in mortality. Your mindset is very important for how you live. Paul here, and the passage we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be Looking at Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 8 and 9 and and talking about them, is going to be talking about our mindset, which is important because, of course, it changes the way we act. Read with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 and just going through verse 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time here together. 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your word has to say to us and eyes to see what your word will reveal to us. Lord, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Heavenly Father, let us be a people who live in light of the reality of a resurrected and ascended and returning King and Savior. It's in this Savior's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Um, now, this spends a lot of time in, in verse 8 talking about how we're to think. Um, it, it, Paul is, in a way, telling them that you need to discipline your mind. You need to be mindful of your mind. You need to be mindful of the things you're thinking about. You need to be controlling your thoughts rather than having your thoughts control you. And, and I want to give you a, a brief demonstration of, of why this is important. Um, I'm going to do an example of uh, mind control here for you, if I can get this to set right. It'll make it a lot less impressive if I don't. All right. Now... I, I, I want to see if anybody believes I can actually do this. Using the power of my mind, I'm going to move this notebook. Now, does anybody here believe that I can do that? We have one person. I'm, I'm so glad that there's one person that believes, believes in me. All right, using my, the power of my mind, I'm going to move this notebook. Amazing, isn't it? Now, what, he probably caught on to the fact that I didn't say only using my mind. There, there, there's this incredible power of our mind that, that it has, and it has the ability to control and move our bodies. Now, that, that, that's not something extremely deep or profound. This isn't something that you just dis discovered. But I think it's something that we forget about. We, we forget that our mind controls something rather important. It controls ourselves. Paul, for this reason, says you need to be thinking upon, you need to be dwelling upon certain things in your mind because that's going to affect how you live in your body. He gives a, a list of characteristics uh, here, and I just want to give you kind of a quick uh, definitions for each of these six things so that you can be understanding the type of things that Paul is really emphasizing and wanting the believers to think about. First in the list, he says uh, that which is true. Uh, th this has kind of the idea of what's valid, what's honest, what's reliable, that which is in accordance with reality. And he, he uses truth here in a comprehensive sense. So he, he wants the people to be true in their thought, in disposition, in deed. He wants them to be upright and honest people, dependable rather than dishonest or hypocritical people whose thoughts and deeds and actions disguise or misrepresent reality and truth. Next in the list, secondly, he mentions that which is honorable, or maybe your translation says noble. This word has kind of the sense of uh, that which is serious, sublime, dignified, majestic, or august, worthy of respect. Uh, this term is often used in, in relation to holy things. So you would hear it in reference to uh, temples or the law or Sabbath or God. 
It's the opposite of that which is vulgar and base. The third thing he tells us to have our minds dwelling upon are things that are right, or maybe your translation says just. It says uh, that is in what is in accordance with what is just. The idea it has is that of justice and uprightness, worthy of respect. Um, it, it refers to a broad justice, by the way, not just kind of in a narrow uh, relational sense. Are you just with, with other people? No, this is a justice that fulfills our obligations to God, to the legal authorities, to other people in our businesses, and even to ourselves. And this is a characteristic of God. Psalm eleven seventeen says that God is righteous and that he loves justice. We're to be thinking about what is right and just. The fourth thing in the list he mentions is uh, pure, or maybe your translation says holy. This refers to something that is clean, something that is uh, pure, as something that has moral purity and integrity. Uh, It can have the idea of being chaste or innocent morally wants us to think about those things that are pure. Next, fifthly in the list, he uh, says, which is lovely, which is probably something we as Southerners need explained to us because people say, oh, that not that lovely? Uh, this, this has um, an idea behind it of amiable, agreeable, or pleasing. Uh, you, you've heard of awe-inspiring. Uh, this... The kind of uh, the root idea behind this word is love-inspiring. It is that which uh, calls forth love in a person. It's somebody who has a character which is agreeable and brings forth the best in others. Lovely, pleasing, agreeable, amiable is the idea behind it. Sixthly, and finally, of these uh, lists of terms Paul's throwing out here, he says is of good, repu- of good repute or admirable. Uh, this has an idea of something that is essentially uh, filled with worthfulness. Uh, here we have the idea, uh, one person wrote this, I found it good. What is kind and likely to win people, avoiding what is likely to give offense of good repute. Now, one thing we notice is uh, Paul puts special emphasis on each one of these. As he goes through the list, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do you notice how he just doesn't say whatever is true, honorable, just, pure? No, he, he emphasizes it each time. Whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. He, he wants people to be very conscientious of what they are conscious of. He wants them to be thinking about these things. When he exhorts them to think about these things, the idea behind this verb is to think continually on these things, to let your mind continually dwell on these things. 
one of the things I wonder is uh, if they created a cord that could hook up to the back of your brain and then attach it to a projector where your thoughts are put up behind you. How scary would that be? <laughs> to, ha to have everything you're thinking projected out there. And I, I think if I had that happen to me is what would pro was projected up there. Now, would it be true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute? Am I cultivating my thoughts in an appropriate manner? The, 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 the kind of sweat that starts forming when I think about that thought tells me I have a lot of work to do in this area in refining and purifying the things that my mind dwells on. And you can kind of tell different people have different things they dwell on, don't you? There's a, a scene in one of my favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption, where they have one of the prison guards, and they're talking near the, the prisoners, and uh, he's talking about this lump sum of money he's won. And, and the other guys are congratulating him and saying, man, isn't that great? Isn't that fantastic? And he says, well, after they take out all the taxes and the local and the city, you know, it's almost not worth it. You know, he's, he's finding a way to complain and finding a way to grumble about receiving a lump sum of money. There's other people you, you notice and you see, and they tend to be thankful and joyful no matter what their circumstances. I've encountered this more and more uh, as I've had a position here that has me deal with a lot of the sick and infirmed. And part of my responsibility is, is going out to hospitals and seeing people in various conditions. There are some people that are going through excruciating pain and difficult circumstances, yet you see they continually have a joy. They're continuing to search for and find the positive things. One, one of the things you, you, you can notice about our own mental acrobatics and exercises is uh, you tend to find what you're looking for. Have you ever gotten a new car and, and all of a sudden you begin seeing that car all over the place? You, you get a green Camry and it's a new-to-you car and then all of a sudden you're, you're seeing everywhere all these other green Camrys. Now, it, it's not that all of a sudden the number of green Camrys has suddenly increased. What's changed is your ability and your consciousness of looking for green Camrys. Are, are we training our minds to think about, to search about these virtuous and these wonderful things? Are we focused on other things? Are we training our mind to continually dwell on things which do not reflect these virtues? One of the things I, I want to kind of put a plug in here is um, this should be motivation for us to read Scripture more. What, what fills our minds with these things? Isn't it Scripture? If, if we're having um, doubt and despair, shouldn't you turn to the Psalms to uplift your spirit? If you notice you're, you're having foolish and foolhardy thoughts, shouldn't you turn to the Proverbs to correct you? If you're starting to be prideful in your work, maybe you should turn to Ecclesiastes and see the value of that work. Are we using Scripture to retrain the way in which we are thinking? 
Uh, there, there was a period of time in my life when I was struggling with ingratitude. Well, I take that back. That's my whole life is a period of time struggling with ingratitude. But there, there was one time, and I, I realized I had this problem, and one of the ways I wanted to work on it was to give praise more and more to God. And one of the things I realized is, you know, I almost am so ungrateful that I almost don't have the right vocabulary of praise and thanks. And so what I did was I, I read through the Psalms, and I tried to steal David's language, steal David's imagery, so that I could have the appropriate words and phrases to give th praise and thanks and honor to God. You think about the, the scriptures, which talks about uh, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think this was a, a practice of the early church so that they could be training their minds to think about and reflect on these things. What happens to Paul and Silas in Acts, I believe it's 16, where they're visiting Philippi and they're thrown into the innermost prison. They begin singing the praise of God in the middle of it. This isn't some abstract exercise for Paul, but it's something that gives him joy in the midst of sorrow and difficult circumstances. We're reminded also of the exhortations of Scripture to, ke to take every thought captive. Don't let any one of them slip away. I have a friend, and um, he's raising two kids, and he says uh, they've been emphasizing this passage recently, uh, the, the idea of taking every thought captive. And he says, you know, there are times when he as a father can look over and notice one of his kids is about to say or do something uh, that ain't right. And he says, hold on a minute. Here, I got that one. That one got away from you. And what he means is you weren't taking that thought captive and you were about to say or do something that was not reflecting good virtue or character. Uh, this is something... I don't think we think thoroughly enough of. There's a, a professor who was at Dallas Seminary when I was there, and he says this about taking our thoughts captive. On the authority of the Word of God, I submit to you that the greatest conflict being waged is not international, not political, not economic, and not social. The greatest conflict taking place in the world today is the battle for control of our minds. Now I want you to, th to think about what our minds are sub subject to in this day and age. We have access to almost any type of information or entertainment imaginable. What's occupying our thoughts? What's controlling our mind? And, and even the little things, even the little decisions that determine what we focus on are important. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity, um, which I've read the, for the first time as a senior in high school and I've reread many times, has a great quote about how important the little decisions are in our lives. C.S. Lewis says, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions, or the little thoughts, you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may able, be able to go on to victories 
you never dreamed of. An apparent trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Are we taking seriously the fact that we are called to be people who take every thought captive, who have our minds dwelling on things that reflect the virtue and the goodness of God. Another thing I want to emphasize, other than spending more time in Scripture to allow our thoughts to dwell on these noble and good things, is to emphasize the importance of theology. Somebody once referred to uh, chapter 8 as one of the shortest biographies of Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Is that not a description of Christ and His worthiness, His beauty, His attributes? Are we growing in our knowledge of God? Are we thinking about Him? Are we thinking about what He's done for us? I, I hope it's not a seasonal thing where it may be at Easter or maybe at Christmas, we'll, we'll think a little bit more about God and what He's done about this. No, I hope it is a continual aspect of your life to reflect upon who God is and what He has done for you. If you're ever having, having trouble and needing to redirect your thought life, go back to this. Be reminded of it. Verses 9 I want you to, uh, let's talk about the connection between verse 8 and verse 9. Uh, in all these things, he lists out these, these virtues and, and says, let your mind continu continually dwell on these things. There's another these things that's mentioned in chapter 9. In chapter 9, it says, put these things into practice or practice these things. So the, the, the connection here is Paul wants them to be thinking continually on these certain things in order that they can put them into practice. And Paul lays out in verse 9 that these shouldn't just be abstract thoughts for the Philippians, but they've had this modeled for them. He mentions four things in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now there's, there's some disagreement about how to group and how to understand these four things. I, I, I'm going to propose to you one option that I think is the best. There are other options and, and smart people disagree about the exact uh, way to interpret it. But I take the first two as going together and talking about the content of Paul's teaching and the second part talking about the content of his example and lifestyle. So, uh, first of all, it mentions you learned. This is probably a reference to Paul's initial teaching to them. He, he's, you know, fulfilling Matthew 28, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all of, I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Part of Christ's command in that is that we teach the things that he taught, including what he says about himself, including the commands about how we ought to live. Paul taught this to them, and they learned it. 
Next of all, it, it says, and received. Uh, the, the word here, uh, one of the commentaries I read kind of said that this is kind of a specific term. It says, uh, this word you received is a semi-technical term employed to denote receiving something delivered by tradition. The idea is transmitting and safeguarding vitally important information. And, and for our, our context, we're um, in a kind of a literate and a digital age where you can get information from all sorts of sources at any time. Uh, this isn't as prominent. Uh, but I want to give you a story that comes from 2004 that kind of gives this idea of receiving and safeguarding something passed on from tradition. In 2004, there was a huge tsunami that hit in Southeast Asia. In the Indian Ocean, there was a 1.3 magnitude earthquake that occurred. And, and as a result of a tidal wave that came out of that, there were many places that were destroyed. Some places didn't get news about the tidal wave coming. Some did and still weren't prepared enough. And the devastation in islands and in the coastland of Southeast Asia was devastating. And there were groups that went around and kind of surveyed and, and looked at the damage. Some of the people on these islands were living very primitively. And, try, uh, and uh, one of the things they found was there was this one area where the entire village had been wiped out. Yet they found almost all the people of this particular tribe were still living. And they were really curious what, what happened. How did they make it when sometimes even more advanced civilizations didn't? And, and when they went and talked to them, they found out that there was a story that had been passed on for generations and generations for uh, probably over 100 years. I think it might have been hundreds of hundreds of years, had been passed on by word of mouth, and it was a warning. It was a warning that if you ever see the tide recede rapidly, far past the normal point in which it does, get to the high ground. Now, this message was passed on and on, and for generations, people never used that advice because they never experienced something. And they found out in other areas, one of the things that would happen is, is the tide just went back super far and people were walking way out because it was so odd and, and, and peculiar to be able to walk, you know, my, in, some, in, in some cases, miles further than they could normally out there. But what they didn't realize was that the wave was coming. This particular tribe, because they had received and safeguarded the, the tradition, the warning that when the tide zooms back, get to the high ground, they were all saved. Paul here is saying, you learned something, you received something from me. Make sure you guard it appropriately. So those two re refer to the content of what they've received and are to put into practice. Next, he mentions what you have heard and seen in me. What you've heard can kind of uh, refer to maybe what Paul said himself, but more likely re refers to what you heard about me. What's Paul's reputation in terms of his action? What do people say about him when he's not around? If you think about Paul's reputation at, at Philippi, we mentioned before, he was put in prison there. What's the story the Philippian jailer tells people around Philippi? I was about to kill myself. 
the earthquake knocked the doors open and the chains off until I heard Paul say, we didn't go anywhere. Everyone's here. Paul has a reputation not just of talking about these principles, but living them out. We've said that joy in the midst of suffering is a huge theme throughout the book of Philippians, and it's something Paul models. He talks about how he rejoices in the Lord, how he rejoices in the Philippians' faith. But where is he writing from? He's writing from prison in Rome, awaiting a trial that could result in his execution. He says, what do you hear about me? What did you see in me? Paul lived out what he taught. It wasn't just head knowledge. It wasn't just theoretical, but it was practical. I I visited a group that uh, uh, had uh, students in this this one area, and they would have, they bring in different Bible teachers to come and talk. And I was talking to the head of the school, and he said they they brought in a kind of prominent author who had written a book on love. And they said he he wasn't real impressed with the guy because at one point, he got frustrated because the students were making noise outside of his room when he was trying to study, get the lesson ready for the next day. And so he stormed out of the room and, and yelled at them to be quiet. I said, here's this guy. He's supposed to be teaching them about love, and yet he's practicing something much different in his lifestyle. All these things, he says, practice them. He wants them to keep putting them into practice. He wants them to continually put these things into practice. So we have something that they're continually meditating upon in their minds, and then something that they're continually living out in their lives. What's the result? What's the benefit of this? It says, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's an interesting contrast, if you'll remember all the way last week, that the end of that passage where it talks about rejoicing the Lord and prayer, it says, uh, you know, if you are not anxious about anything, but if in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made to go, be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that's the peace of God, and here we have the God of peace mentioned. Uh, let's, let's talk a minute about this idea of peace. Peace signifies, and, and this is a quote from one of my favorite commentators, Nam O'Brien, peace signifies the sum of all true blessing, including final salvation. And remember in Philippians, salvation is a work of God. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Peace signifies the sum of all true blessings, including salvation, affected in Christ. By speaking of God as the God of peace, Paul is characterizing him as the source and giver of all true blessing. The God who is both willing and able to help and save to the utmost. At verse 7, they were promised that God's peace would keep them safe. Here they are assured that the God of peace himself will be with him. The two promises are similar with only slight difference of emphasis. In the former, the focus is upon God's salvation guarding them. In the latter, it is upon His presence to bless and to save them. Since the gift of His peace cannot be separated from His presence as the giver, these two assurances are closely related in meaning. 
Now, I, I want you to be very careful, Christians, because there's a sense in which we can slip into attempting to pursue God's blessing without pursuing God himself. There's a danger that when we come to God, when we pray to God, we are seeking his hand and not his face. That is, we want something from God. We don't want God himself. Pursue God before you pursue his blessings. He is the greatest blessing you can receive. Pursue it directly. I hope that you don't have a peace in any other thing. I hope you are not finding your contentment in other areas, but I hope you find your blessing and your salvation in the one true God, the God who we come to worship on Easter as a crucified, as a risen, as an ascended, and as a coming to return Lord over all. He promises he will be with us we dwell upon and practice upon those things that are glorious and honorable. Rely upon Him. Depend upon Him. Seek His face. And always rejoice that we have a resurrected Lord and Savior. Amen.